0: Lord, that is our desire, that we would live as those who have been sanctified, as a holy people, not self-righteous, but those who have been made righteous by you. And then, because of that, because we've been set free from sin, no longer live in it. Lord, I do pray that you would give us clarity to understand this text and how to apply it. Give me wisdom to know how to accomplish that. And Lord, I do pray particularly that You would raise our revulsion towards sin of all kinds. Lord, that we might strive to be a a holy people, even as You've called us to be. We ask these things in Your name. Amen. In the book, Tenting Tonight... A Soldier's Life, author James Robertson explains that three-fourths of a Civil War surgeon's time was spent amputating limbs. Most wounds suffered by soldiers during the Civil War were from gunshots, and uh, typically they were to the arms or to the legs, various limbs. And amputation actually was the soldier's best chance of survival. Union soldiers suffered... 100,000, 174,000 extremities to their wounds, sorry, extremity wounds, that is to arms and legs. And of these, 30,000 resulted in amputations. So out of 174, 30 of those wounds resulted in amputations. And three quarters of those amputees ended up surviving. The sooner the amputation was performed, the better chance a soldier had of survival. If amputation was delayed more than 48 hours, blood poisoning or bone infection or worst of all, gangrene would set in and the death rate would double at that time. William Blackford of the 1st Virginia Calvary writes this. Table uh, describing the, the scene of a Surgeon's tent, he says tables about breast high had been erected upon which screaming victims were having legs and arms cut off the surgeons and their assistants stripped to the waist and bespattered with blood stood around some holding the poor fellows while others armed with long bloody knives and saws cut and sawed away with frightful rapidity, throwing the mangled limbs on a pile nearby as soon as removed. His men were soon overwhelmed by the prayers, the curses, the screams, the blood, the flies, the sickening stench of this horrible little valley. And so, as gruesome and as unpleasant as it was for these surgeons to amputate, they did so because it was in the best interests of. Those soldiers. They did so because they needed to preserve those limbs from infection in order to really preserve the lives of those men themselves. And Paul makes a similar case in the passage before us. Because although the Corinthians should have been dealing with sin in their midst, they were allowing it to fester. And the passage before us gives us three right responses we should have to similar sinful infections within the church. Mourn immorality. Secondly, remove the unrepentant. And thirdly, keep clean. So first of all, let's look at the first point in verses 1 and 2. Mourn immorality. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And of a kind that's not even tolerated among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you're arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? So you can see there's a real sense of shock here when Paul writes this letter at this point. He's amazed at what he hears that the Corinthians are actually tolerating sexual immorality within their church. And that's where the real shock is. Not just that immorality happens, but that they're actually tolerating it. In a second, he'll note how shocking the kind of immorality is. But first, just recognize he's shocked that any immorality is tolerated. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. Of any kind. The word immorality in the Greek is the word porneia, from which we get the term pornography. And it refers really to any sexual activity outside of marriage. And that would include, of course, homosexuality. I feel like I have to make that clarification because in our own time, we've redefined marriage in our society as an attempt to normalize that particular kind of sexual perversion. But it would be included within this term porneia, any kind of sexual activity outside of the confines of marriage. And Paul will actually make this explicit in chapter 6 when he writes, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, But he doesn't stop there. Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then know what he says in verse 11. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. So this might have been something they were engaged in previously, but they had given it up when they came to Christ. They were sanctified in his letter to the Ephesians. Paul writes this in verse chapter five, verse three. He writes, but sexual immorality, same word that we have in first Corinthians, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. It must not even be named. Joshua Harris, about 10 years ago, maybe even 20 years ago now wrote a book called Not Even a Hint, dealing with this theme of sexual immorality, how to guard ourselves from lust in particular. And that's really the the point here that Paul is saying, don't let even a hint of sexual immorality be named among you, as is proper among saints, those who have been sanctified, set apart for God's service. Now, that statement, not even a hint be named among you, might even, might sound a bit over the top, especially for us who live in a very over-sexualized culture. But the Paul makes it clear here that even the slightest bit of sexual immorality has no place in the lives of believers. The slightest bit. And when we say that, the slightest bit, that would include... Many different forms. I mean, the slightest bit of sexual immorality. Scenes from a movie. Could be suggestive music. Even explicit language or humor. The slightest bit should not even be named among you. So the point being is it's not prudish to avoid sexual content. It's right. That's the right response we should have to sexual immorality. Avoidance is the right response. Now, just to be clear, sex is a good thing. It was designed by God as part of the blessing that he gave to both Adam and Eve within the garden. And for all others who have gotten married since then. It's a blessing of God. But any sexual experience outside of a marriage relationship is something that should be grieved by the believer. It's not something that we should find enticing. And I don't say that to make anybody here feel guilty. I say it because that's what the Bible teaches. I want to shed light of the truth on the reality of how evil sexual immorality is. It has horrible consequences... And it leads to great destruction. It's a twisting. Uh, Another word is, it's a perversion of what God had designed to be enjoyed only within the confines of marriage. And we should respond to sexual immorality, I think, in the same way that we would respond if we were to hear racist comments. So how would you respond if you're surfing the net and a advertisement for the Ku Klux Klan popped up, would you find that enticing or revulsion or revolting? Or if you were to listen to talk show hosts joking about a lynching, would that make you want to continue listening or would it make you sick? And we live in a society where racism is something that we, as a society, for good reasons We're revolted at, and we should be. But sexual immorality is something that we celebrate. So, I say that, that we shouldn't be deceived. When we get exposed through our culture to more and more immorality, after a while, we just become numb to it. And we just don't find it as repulsive as we should. And that's the way temptation works. It numbs our abhorrence to sin. So, we get tempted, first of all, by sin being seen as normal. When sin gets normalized, all of a sudden it seems okay. And then, after it seems okay, it seems to be, it suggests that it, engaging in this sort of sin would actually be helpful, if not necessary for your good. It seems to offer us a, a kind of hope. So the more we're exposed to sin, the more normal it seems. And when we're exposed to sin and worldly priorities and worldly values, we slowly embrace them. And so at one point, what once grieved us, which we found horrifying and disgusting, after a while, it's, it seems to offer us hope. This is going to save me. This is going to make my life better. And the Corinthians, as we have seen, have embraced worldly priorities And we've been discussing that in the previous chapters. But they're so far along in this process of just thinking like the world, thinking like the rest of the Corinthians, that they've gone even further than the rest of the Corinthian society to the extent that they're actually embracing sexual immorality of a kind that the world around them would even find revolting. Namely, incest. He says a man has his father's wife. Now, this isn't the term that's used is referencing not this man's biological mother but his stepmother but still even in that society this was something that was seen as disgusting it's not even tolerated among pagans paul writes so even in the oversexualized culture of greece this was seen as revolting even in corinth which was As we saw in the introduction to the book of Corinthians, that was a culture that threw itself on the sex trade. Particularly through the temple of Aphrodite. Yet the church in Corinth seemed to be okay with this incest. And either the church members, they just turned a blind eye towards what they knew was going on. Because this was common knowledge. The report had made it to Paul, who was cities away. So either they turned a blind eye to it or maybe they even celebrated it in the name of Christian tolerance. Like many churches in America do with sexual immorality today. But whatever it was, they were failing to respond rightly to it. They were unwilling to confront this man in his sin. But note this, what's even more shocking to Paul... Is not just that they have a sinner in their midst. That's actually not what he's shocked by. It's the fact that the Corinthians were boasting of their spirituality in the midst of, or while having this sort of unrepentant sinner in their midst. What concerns Paul is the fact that they're boasting about how great they are, while totally ignoring this gross immorality. He says, you're arrogant. And this builds off what Paul was addressing earlier in chapter four, verses 18 and 19. They were boasting of their spirituality. To the extent that they were even comparing their giftedness with those of the apostles. And what it looked like is that they were you know, noting that Paul's words were weak and you know he he came in in weakness and he didn't have persuasive words words of wisdom like some of the other maybe corinthian teachers not as great as they were so they're boasting in their own spiritual gifts but completely ignoring the greater issue which was immorality in their midst so paul's shock is really concerned With their blindness to what actually mattered, they were impressed by their own wisdom and rhetorical gifts, but they could care less about holiness. So again, this would be like a church boasting in their size or their popularity while ignoring the fact that there are members in their staff that are having an affair together. The stuff they're proud of, they're boasting in, doesn't matter. While holiness is completely ignored. So again, this is just another piece of evidence of how the Corinthians were thinking just like the world. They weren't thinking according to the word and God's instructions to them, but assessing themselves, evaluating themselves based upon what the world considered important. But they've gotten even worse than the culture around them, apparently. So just imagine a husband boasting to his wife about the fact that he's so good to her because he makes six figures and he provides for the family while at the same time he's having an affair with his secretary. You would say that husband is completely missing it. And you'd be right. That's where the church of Corinth was at. Proud of What they were doing on the outside and yet completely missing the whole point of what it meant to be a church. So rather than making toast to their own successes, they should have been grieving like mourners at a funeral. He says, ought you rather to mourn? So the fact that somebody in their church was caught up in unrepentant sin should have come down on them. Like when a parent hears that their child has contracted a terminal illness. There's a member within their church that is going to die. He's deathly sick. And they're boasting about nothingness. And this reminds us. Of the reality that when we are self-consumed, when we're simply focused upon our own accomplishment, on our own success, on our own individual achievement, how easy it is to simply ignore sin. To just think it doesn't matter. Both in our lives as well as in the lives of others. Because when we think that way, that our success is really what defines us. And again, success by how the culture out there would define it. But when we think that what really is good or what really determines success is what people think of us, then all of a sudden that's all that matters. And so we could live immoral lives, but hey, if everybody else thinks we're great, then we tend to just justify it. Or we just tend to ignore it in the lives of others because we don't care. Right, that's their life, let them deal with it. That, of course, is not how... Christ calls us to live. See, if we think we're successful and accomplished and yet fail to mourn sin in ourselves and others, it just shows the fact that we're completely missing the point. Holiness does not simply mean not sinning. It means responding rightly to sin. So let's make that clear. When Paul's exhorting them to be holy, he's not just saying there can't be any sinners in your midst. Because that, that's going to happen. We're all sinners. We all struggle with sin and of various kinds. But we need to respond rightly to sin when it gets committed. Namely, repentance. And if there's a person in our midst that fails to be willing to repent from sin, but steadfastly refuses to continue in it, like this man in Corinth, Paul will explain what we need to do in that sense. But holiness means Not just sinning, but responding rightly to sin. It also means living faithfully as God has called us to live, as people who are set apart from for His service. But it also means responding rightly to sin in other people. And if we're living as Christ has called us to live, when we see another brother or sister struggling with sin, then we're going to want to respond rightly to them. And this is not going to look like self-righteous scorn. It doesn't look like, oh, you wicked, evil person. How does Paul say it's going to look? Look at the text. What's, what's Paul say it's going to look like in our hearts when we see somebody struggling with sin? It doesn't look like scorn. It looks like mourning. When you hear of another person struggling with sin, do you grieve? Or do you think, man, what an idiot. Or, I saw that coming. Does it make you feel slightly better about yourself or does it break your heart? It should break our hearts. And again, if their struggle no longer becomes a struggle, but they steadfastly refuse to repent, we should care enough to help them by removing the unrepentant from fellowship, as Paul calls the Corinthians to do here. In verses two through five, he says, let him who has done this be removed from you. For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit. And if as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So the specific action that he calls for is for that person to be removed from fellowship. Until he's willing to repent, he cannot continue to enjoy the fellowship that he had with the other members of the church at Corinth. And Paul's going to explain the logic behind this in the verses that follow. And in short, it's twofold. First, it's to help the man wake up to what he's doing, to help him see the consequences of sin. But secondly, it's to cut off the presence of sin within the congregation. Just like a limb in the Civil War would get amputated to cut off the spread of gangrene. And again, such action might sound harsh. But it's the obvious thing to do in Paul's eyes. Notice what he says. I've already pronounced judgment. It didn't take Paul long to figure out what needs to happen. I'm here at a distance, and it's as good as I'm there. Remove the man from your midst. I pronounce judgment upon him. It's the same word that we've already come across, krino in the Greek, for judgment. And notice that Paul is able to pronounce this judgment because it's a known sin that the Bible strictly forbids. So, really, it's not Paul the one pronouncing the judgment. He's just telling them what the Bible says. So this isn't Paul saying, hey, this is my opinion. Paul's saying, this is wrong. The Bible makes it clear that this is wrong. Remove the unrepentant sinner from your midst. So how should Christians respond to sin? The same way we respond to our own sin. We need to repent from it. And again, if there's somebody who's unwilling to repent. Well, that's when you have to remove the unrepentant person from your midst. So again, it's not saying that we got to be perfect because we're not we're going to fail. I could give you lists. That's why we have a time of confession in our pastoral prayer, because we sin. We need to continue to repent from our sin. But the point when we refuse to repent. That's when that person needs to be separated from the body. So what would you do if you saw a cook at a local restaurant walk out of a stall in a restroom with some brown substance on their hands, fail to wash, and then go back to the kitchen and start kneading some dough to bake or slicing vegetables up? What would you do? Maybe somebody would go and tell on him, um, this is what happened. And you probably never return, if that's the case. But if you're a fellow employee, you would probably report it to the manager. If you were the manager, you'd probably fire him on the spot. Clear standard that's being completely ignored. And it's also putting other people at risk as well as the establishment itself. Now, would we think that's harsh if we heard about that in the news, that a cook who failed to wash his hands after using the restroom got fired? No. We think, good! They actually hold a standard of purity in their restaurant. But notice, that's just clean hands. How much more should we grieve or be shocked When we hear about this kind of sin in the church. That has far greater consequences. And this is why Paul can easily make this judgment while absent. There's no further deliberations that are necessary. The man's guilty and unrepentant. Decisive action needs to be taken. So Christians... Christians often struggle with how we should respond to somebody who's struggling with sin. I mean, struggling is the wrong word. Who's in unrepentant sin. A person struggling with sin, that's an issue. I mean, they should be struggling with sin. But it's the the point when they stop struggling that's the problem. When they just embrace it. When they're unrepentant. But we shouldn't struggle with this. The Bible's clear. If a person is refusing to repent from sin then steps towards church discipline need to be taken. And those are outlined in Matthew 18 by our Lord. Paul explains what this is going to look like. First of all, the removal of the unrepentant sinner from fellowship is to take place when assembled. So the action of removal is something that should take place when the whole body is gathered together. And the reason for Public removal from fellowship is not because Paul is trying to heap shame upon the person. He's not trying to use shame as a motivation to get him to repent, though it might have that effect. He
1: he has it
0: happen with the congregations together so that the church themselves might be warned. This is for the good of the church. The church needs to understand together that the danger of tolerating unrepentant sin. They need to be aware of the danger. That this unrepentant sinner is corrupting the rest of the body. They're putting the rest of the body in danger. Now, it's interesting, in the Roman world, the only uh, kind of capital punishment, um, the, only, the only crime that could be, um, would result in capital punishment was the crime of treason acting against, you know, seeking to harm your nation, either by, you know, taking a bribe or, you know, killing a, an important official. Treason is the only, was the only executable crime within the Roman world. But that's for a, a Roman citizen. Of course, a slave could be executed. But a Roman citizen could only be executed for capital punishment. Or sorry, for good night. Yeah, exactly. Uh, For um, treason. Thank you. Now, where was I? (laughs) And the reason is, is because that person is putting the lives of the whole nation in danger for personal gain. In other words, he's saying personal gain is worth the life and the well-being and the freedom of other people. And so he was executed publicly so that the public would realize the danger that they had in their midst. And they take that seriously. So Paul is not advocating capital punishment here, but he is advocating banishment because this person is unwilling to repent from the sin. They're keeping the sin in the midst of the church. And so he says, the church needs to deliver this man to Satan. Because this man has chosen and continues to choose to reject God's counsel on how we should be living. And so, because he's choosing instead to follow the ways of this world, Paul says, then he needs to be given up to the ruler of this world. You want to choose to follow Satan? Fine. Return to your former wicked slave master. Paul is advocating giving the man a full dose of what he wants. So such action is not only going to preserve the church by cutting off sin from the church. It's also going to work to help this unrepentant sinner realize what he's actually embracing. Because at the time it might just seem, oh, this is good. This is going to to help me. This is going to bring consolation in being in this immoral relationship not realizing that what he was doing was actually destroying his own soul and destroying the rest of the church in the process. So this is to wake him up. By being handed over to the ruler of this world, he's going to lose access to the protective grace that comes by being a part of a body of believers. Because as we've taught before, God actually distributes grace. He empowers, he... he, He distributes grace through the gathered body of believers. He distributes grace through prayer and strengthens through prayer, through hearing the word preached and read. We get strengthened that way and through fellowship with one another. So by cutting him off from the body, that man is going to be left unprotected and handed over to Satan. And you want to know what that looks like? Consider what God allowed when he told Satan, Satan, that he could have his way with Job. It's awful. But the hope in doing this is that he would realize the full consequences of his foolishness so that he might be saved. And if he doesn't repent, the hope that Paul has is that eventually, even because he did proclaim faith in Christ that he will die and gain a resurrected body eventually. But even if the hope is that it wouldn't get that far even, that eventually he would come to repentance. And so I like to think that the man who's addressed in 2 Corinthians, whom Paul says, welcome the sinner back to your midst, is the same man. That he did come to repent. And that is what our hope is. Any time that we have to cut off an unrepentant sinner from our body, practicing church discipline, the hope is that that person would repent. It's not to shame him. It's not to make it look. It's not to make us look good because hey, we don't tolerate sin. It's care for that person that he would be saved. But Paul would rather have him experience the temporal pain and loss and being handed over to Satan so that he would realize the horrible consequences of his sin and that he'd wake up to the reality of the deception that he's lived in so that he wouldn't get so far that he would die unrepentant from his sin and then realize on the day of judgment that he never in fact did know Christ. That he wouldn't have to hear Christ say, depart from me, I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. Which is what Jesus says he will declare to those who don't repent from their sin in Matthew 7.22. Paul says also in 1 Corinthians 11.32, he says, when we're judged by the Lord, that is when we're disciplined by him. We're disciplined so that we wouldn't be condemned along with the world. God disciplines us. The church practices discipline, constrains believers to repent so that they wouldn't be condemned along with the world, that they would take their calling to holiness seriously. Paul then illustrates the importance of purity in the church by reference to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Also known as the Passover. It says this in verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let's therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So the illustration demonstrates here that Paul is not particularly concerned just with this individual. It's not just this man who's gotten caught up in sexual immorality. Paul's concern is with the church. He's concerned about how the church is responding. They're boasting while tolerating immorality. And this tolerance is illustrative of the church's arrogance. That they would tolerate evil and boast at the same time. So the exhortation here is so that the church would rightly respond to sin, not just that the church would practice church discipline. He's trying to get at the heart of the church, the heart of their thinking, the worldliness that has corrupted them. And so he draws this out when he says your boasting's not good. And in the upcoming verses, Paul explains what's really worth celebrating, what's really worth boasting about. See, they're boasting in, we got good rhetoric. Paul's going to say, no, this is what's really worth boasting about. The sacrifice of the Passover lamb. The church should be more concerned about walking in holiness and truth than these other things that they're proud of. That's the problem. And so he says, cleanse out the old leaven. Now, the, the the illustration here is of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, also called the Passover. And right before the Passover feast, uh, Jews, and they still practice this today, would do a thorough cleaning of their house. And they'd go so far as to remove every speck of dust to try and remove any amount of yeast within the household. So, they do this, They they choose not to buy any yeast, and they, they choose to remove any leftover yeast, but they they go as far, so far as to remove every hint of leaven that could possibly be there. Because they don't want any leaven in their midst. They want to prepare for the eating of the Paschal Lamb, the Passover Lamb, remembering the blood of the Lamb... ...that was spread upon the doorposts of the houses... ...right before the exodus from Egypt. The lamb was sacrificed... ...and and, um, the instructions that were given to them was... ...after that lamb is sacrificed... ...put it on the doorposts of your houses... ...and when the angel of the Lord comes by... uh, ...he will pass over your house... ...and your oldest child... ...your oldest male child will not be killed. And he also gave the command to bake unleavened bread... So that you may rise quickly after this point, in order to depart from Egypt. And so the Jews would practice this as a preparation in the feast of unleavened bread to remember the lamb that's going to be sacrificed. But of course, what Paul says here is the lamb that the Paschal lamb that point that 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 feast pointed to was Christ. And he's already been sacrificed. So in the, in the Passover feast, the Jews would prepare for the lamb. They'd get them to become holy, cleanse themselves from leaven in preparation for the lamb. Paul's saying, now you've already been made holy. So having been made holy, how much more should you continue in it? The lamb's already been sacrificed. The leaven should have been dealt with a long time ago. So keep yourselves clean is the point. The Passover lamb has already been sacrificed. You've already been made clean. Stay that way. And so if the Jews did everything they could to remove leaven from their midst and looking forward to the sacrifice, how much more should we do everything that we can to keep ourselves clean from any immorality? Again, it's, the leaven is illustrative of sin. We need to take sin seriously. Even though we live in a culture that says, hey, it's no big deal. It's just what people do. It's human. As Christians, that's not how we should respond. We should grieve it and we should do everything we can to keep ourselves clean. Because it does destroy. Paul then makes another statement in verse 8 when he says, Let's therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. You should be boasting about something. You should be celebrating something. And it's not how great your wisdom is or how great your rhetoric is. What you should be celebrating is the fact that this lamb has been sacrificed. You've been made clean. You've been purified. You're a holy people. Celebrate that. Rejoice in that in sincerity and truth not with filth tolerating filth in your midst so paul's point here is that if you really understood the truth that Christ is our passover lamb and you really understand that you've been completely purified when we come together and celebrate on sundays that reality we should also celebrate the fact that we've been made clean. We should celebrate our holiness and therefore strive to continue to be clean. So when we gather together in community groups or in our men's discipleship groups, we should be challenging one another, encouraging one another to keep ourselves clean. And again, that doesn't mean that we beat each other up when we fail, because we will. But we restore one another in a spirit of gentleness. But at the same time, we continue to press one another on Understanding the danger of sin. He specifically describes this old leaven as malice and evil. And basically both words are synonyms of the same thing. Evil. It's words that characterize the ruler of this world, Satan. He says, don't live like him. Don't live like him. Instead, be characterized by Sincerity and truth. And that is, their, the Christian's behavior and choices should truly correspond to those who follow Christ. We should look like Christ. We should do things that Christ did. Or even as we saw last week, that Paul did. Those are our standards. So we shouldn't be comparing ourselves with the church down the road or our other neighbor. We need to be comparing ourselves to what what does the Bible call us to and hold ourselves to those standards. Again, not self-righteousness, but standards of the fact that we've been made righteous by His righteousness. It's not self-righteousness. It's because we've been made holy. Let's continue in that holiness. And encourage one another to walk in it as well. If Christians begin to tolerate sin, eventually what happens is, Is churches begin to tolerate sin. Because it just becomes normal. Everybody else in the church is doing it. It's it's normal to everybody else. After a while the church accepts it. And then what happens is. Members are no longer challenged to really follow Christ. And after a while. It's hard to tell who's really saved and who isn't. And this is the, the case in many churches in America. Most of my family my extended family, claim to follow Christ. I'm not quite sure that's actually the case. Because they claim to follow Christ because they claim to believe the gospel. They claim to love Jesus. They go to church every Sunday. But their lives look nothing like Christ. They're not even striving to be that way. It's hard to tell they're even Christian. But they go to church. But for them... Everybody else in church lives the same way. So, these family members may be Christians. And so when people ask, is your, your brother, or your sister, or your extended family, your cousins, are they saved? It's, I have to say, my brother is. I know my brother is. But um, yeah, now I'm like, oh, who's going to be listening to this recording? So, you know, But honestly, it's hard to tell. And I say that not because... I don't want them to be saved, but it's hard to tell. And part of the problem is because they're not going to churches that would hold that standard to them. And so I don't know when the day comes when I might have to be at their funeral, if there's no change. I'm not sure what I'd have to say. But they claim to believe the gospel, and so they might be saved. But it's hard to know because there's no evident fruit. So again, how does this happen? It happens by Christians not taking sin seriously. Seriously, and then after a while, churches stop to take sin stop taking sin seriously, and after a while, then it's just it's hard to tell. What does a Christian really live like? And so even as a church. We need to be careful not just to compare ourselves with other churches, particularly in America, but are we are we living life? Are we doing Christianity how Christ has called us? Are we living according to Christ's standards, not America's standards? So I'd encourage us, let's pursue holiness all the more and lovingly encourage one another to repent from sin. When we get caught in some sort of trespass so that we might be restored and enjoy the full blessings that Christ has promised us us through his blood. And with that, it offers us a great transition to the Lord's table. The elements that we have before us are reminders of what Christ did for us on the cross. And as we come to the Lord's table, we should remember just that fact, that the bread that's broken is a reminder of His broken body for us, and the cup a reminder of His shed blood for us. And that happened so that we might be cleansed, that we might be holy. And in a minute, I'll call the the worship team up and we'll begin a song. But before you come up and take the elements, as we all will together, before you do that, prepare your hearts. So the question might come up, well, how do I prepare my heart for communion? Well, it's in light of some of the things we've talked about today. Is there any unconfessed sin in your life? Is there anything that that, that you haven't made right with God? Is there anything you're not willing to repent from? And if there is something you're not willing to repent from, don't come. But you should deal with it. And I would encourage you to repent from it. Confess that sin. Make it right. because The table reminds us we're called to be a holy people. Repenting from all known sin. So secondly, we should remember that Christ has purified us. He's made us clean. So even if you had sinned, whether it was something you did years ago Or whether it was something you did a couple hours ago. Christ's blood purifies you from all sin. You are forgiven. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Believe that. Embrace that. Trust that. And then thirdly, commit yourself to stop pursuing sin. Commit yourself to follow Christ. Even to the extent of dying on a cross. The cost of following Christ is high. And so, remember that. And so when you think of that, the, the price that Christ paid for our cleansing, all of a sudden, giving up sin should be seen as a pretty small thing. We've not, we won't have to, I mean, that's a, it's a good thing for us when we give up sin. But Christ has given up far more than that to cleanse us from that sin. So those three things. Confess any known sin, commit to follow Christ and, uh, and recall the fact that you have been completely purified and embrace that, rejoice in that. As Paul says, let's celebrate this feast together. All right. So now the, the worship team can come up and um, when you're ready and you've prepared your heart, um, come on and we'll give, come up and take the elements and then we'll celebrate um, the taking of the bread and the cup together as a congregation.